Right, Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63. And I want us to read together. Verses 1 through 9. Isaiah chapter 63. May the Lord give us ears to hear his voice in the word of God today. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me, and I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindness as of the Lord, and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. And all their affliction and the angel of his presence saved them in his, his pity. days of old. We'll end our reading there at verse 9. We Lord will bless his word to our hearts. This morning I'm taking as our text particularly verse 3 and more particularly the last part of verse 3. Again that verse says, I have trodden the winepress and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. Indeed, a verse that has to do with the Lord Jesus suffering the wrath of God and bearing the sins of his people. This morning I want us to think particularly on those words found there, there was none with me. None with me. 
And before we go further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we pray that thou wilt bless the word of God. We pray that thou wilt use it in our midst as the sword, but also as bread. Let us be those who know the good of being in the word of God, of opening our hearts to the truth of our God, and of seeking the face of our God, both in prayer, in the word, and as we meet around the table. We pray thy blessing and thy helping. Lord, I ask that thou will guide all things this day, both word and thought and heart alike. Lord, bless us. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of my and of the people there was none with me. We might ask the question to begin with, who is being spoken of in the verses that we have just read? Well, the answer, I think, is somewhat obvious. In fact, the answer to that question is given to us. At the end of verse 1, it says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, who is that? You and I would have to conclude, well, this is certainly a word that speaks about the Lord Jesus. There's no doubt to whom this refers. And again, it is plain and obvious that the one spoken of is the one that we call Savior. Indeed, I would say that you have in these verses a very clear foretelling of what will be faced, not by the people of God when it comes to the matter of atonement, but rather what is faced by the Lord Jesus as he faces the day must be made for the people of God. Now it is equally obvious that what the Savior is to face on behalf of those that the Lord loves is the winepress of the wrath of God. Again, I stress that. He faces the winepress of the wrath of God. It is there in that place of God's judgment that the Savior is clothed with garments made red with blood. He faces the day of God's vengeance on all that was a criminal offense against the Lord God. But in the midst of the revelation of this awful scene of blood and wrath, there is also a very somber statement that is made. And that is this, I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people, there was none with me. Now I would have to say that in some ways that's a very sad note. There perhaps is even the sound of loneliness in those words. Perhaps... There is also the sound of being forsaken. We might ask the question, is this the forsaking of the Lord by the disciples who fled that night? Or is it the sound of a greater loneliness in which the truth of the matter is that no man, no man ever stood with the Lord Jesus in his hour? We should note, as well that verse 5 
reiterates this forsaking. And I looked, and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. The question that we must ask at this point is this. Are these words spoken because the Savior wished that there had been some to stand with him? Certainly, the failure of all men comes plainly to the fore. But the point of the words is not, I say, that the Lord wished to be in a situation that was other. But rather, I think you find that he states that there could not be another situation than, than there was. No one could stand with the Lord in that hour. There's the point. None could stand with him in that hour. Well, we'll have to ask the question, then why? Why is that true? Well, my point this morning that I'm wanting us to think about, the proposition that I would make to you is simply this, that only the Lord Jesus could stand in that hour in the wine press. For only he was ordained by God for that hour, and only he was able to be in that place of judgment. He alone was the one who could be there. And he alone was the one who could fulfill the demands of God. I want us to think then about the Lord Jesus standing alone. There was none with him. Alone, as it were, in the winepress of the judgment of God. And why it is that only he could be there and none could be with him. Well, the first thing I want you to see with me is this, that his was a singular sorrow. His was a singular sorrow. Very well be true that since the fall, fall, man has been well acquainted with grief and sorrow, that mankind is one who knows what it is to grieve over the situations in his own soul as well as the situations of life. Job chapter 5 verse 7 says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. In fact, we read of that very first that had to deal with fallen man about his sin. And it says in Genesis 3 and verse 17 about the Lord speaking to Adam. And he says, And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree which, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Man is well acquainted with sorrow. It is further true that when Isaiah 53 speaks of the Lord Jesus as being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it means that he sees and he enters into the sorrows of fallen man. He knows all that there is to know about the sorrows that we endure through the days of our lives as those who are yet under the curse of sin. Yet, The sorrow that the Lord Jesus faced in that hour when he was in the winepress of God's wrath was a sorrow 
that no man could ever know or more than that could ever endure. The sorrow that Christ saw was not a sorrow that you and I could ever know or endure. His sorrow was the sorrow of the infinite. His sorrow was the sorrow of the eternal Son being torn from the love of the everlasting Father. Indeed, I would say this, that the sorrow into which the Lord Jesus entered cannot be compared to any other except perhaps the everlasting sorrow that will be known by souls in a never-ending lake of fire. But even those are finding that such sorrow is everlasting destructive to them are in hell being constantly, continuously, everlastingly destroyed. Now you say, how does that fit? How can that be? It is the truth. Everlasting sorrow for everlasting destruction. Everlasting dying. Everlasting dealing with the weights and burdens of sin that you know is still on you forever and ever and ever. What sorrow is there there? You'll never be able to know a sorrow like you will in that day. But even then, that did not come close to the sorrow that the Lord Jesus bore as he stepped into the wine press wrath of God for you and for me as his heart as it were was broken because the love of the everlasting father was torn from him in that moment in which he was made to be the object of the wrath of God in fact Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12 has a statement that supports what I'm trying to say here it says it is nothing to you all ye that pass by, behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. There I say you have the very testimony of the one who is the redeemer of God's elect. That in the day of his sorrow, he could say to those that might behold him or even look on the situation, you don't understand what you're seeing. It's nothing to you. You, have, you don't enter into the fierce sorrow that I know in the day of the wrath of God's fierce anger. His was a singular sorrow. I want you to see secondly with me, his was a singular sacrifice. I make this point a simple question. Who can stand with Christ and offer to God anything within or of himself that will be counted as a sufficient price for sin? Who can stand and offer a sacrifice for sin out of that which is found within or beside himself. Let me just simply put it this way. If you were to stand in the winepress of God's wrath and offer any sacrifice, both you and your sacrifice would be burned up like Sodom and Gomorrah. The presence of sin and the depression of soul would call for destruction, not forgiveness. 
If you were thought, oh, I'll stand with God. No, you would be destroyed. Even if you brought to God your best things. Oh, that men would learn that. Oh, the religions of the world would learn that. That the things that they bring along with them as a present to God, as if there's some merit in it, it's all going to be destroyed because it's tainted with sin. Only the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, could stand in that place with a sacrifice that could not be destroyed. And let me, let me point out to you the difference between your sacrifice and his. If you brought a sacrifice, I say to you very plainly, it would have to be destroyed because there's sin in it. But the Lord Jesus, because there is no sin in him, brings a perfect sacrifice. And his sacrifice, far from calling for destruction, calls for reward. How vastly different. Perfect righteousness is only rewardable. Now there's no in my notes. What I'm saying. Perfect righteousness is rewardable. Never destructible. And so I would suggest to you this morning that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus was singular. It was unique. Because it must be rewarded with life. And it must be rewarded with never ending infinite love. Love for you, child of God, that does not know anything of abating or ending. His was a singular sacrifice. None with me. Why? Because there's none that could offer what Christ was offering. Third, his was a singular sentence. What was the sentence on the man in the winepress of God's wrath? What was the sentence being executed at that time? Well, the sentence, the answer to that is absolute judgment. Absolute judgment. Judgment that sees infinite power poured out. Now, who can endure such? Who can endure such? The answer is only Christ. Only Christ can endure. And not only so. Think the next step beyond this. Think with me just the next point of conclusion that you make in your mind. Not only was Christ able to endure. But Christ was not only to endure the wrath. But he had the power to take up life again. You and I would be destroyed. But he not only was able to endure, but to take up his life again, as John chapter 10 tells us. What man has such power? Only Christ. For all else, the very sound of the judgment of God would be enough to tear apart the soul. He can endure, but he also is that which takes up his life again. The fourth thing I want you to see with me is this. His was a singular suffering. His was a singular suffering. What was endured by the Lord Jesus? 
You know, when we think about the suffering of Christ, sometimes in our ignorance, we limit our thinking about his suffering to that which he endured from the hands of the soldiers. Well, truly, there was suffering. Man's wrath was also on him, a wrath that injured so that his visage was marred more than any man, as Isaiah tells us. Yes, he endured the wrath of man. He suffered at the hands of man. But my point to you is this, that the suffering endured from man was nothing more than a mosquito bite in comparison to the crushing of the judgment of God. Isaiah 53, verse 10, you know this verse. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. The suffering endured by Christ was a suffering so great that no man could ever stand with him. The fact that he calls for those that were with him to be let go. Think about this with me. And that night when the soldiers came and they arrested him in the garden, the Lord Jesus calls for the release for the letting go of those that were with him. He asked that they would go on their way. And I would suggest to you that that was a mercy on the part of Christ, not the part of the soldiers, for them to be released. Because they could not have stood with him. They could not have endured what he endured. They would have been destroyed. So the call for them to go their way was in essence a call for mercy from his own heart. For if they had not been, all would have been utterly destroyed. Well, I suggest to you a fifth thing. That is, his was a singular strength. His was a singular strength. No man could ever know what it required to tread the winepress of God. And I would suggest again, the Lord Jesus alone was able to sustain the infinite wrath and still be able to, after all, stand without harm or failure. His was a strength as no other. But let me mention this to you as well. It is that same infinite strength that was in the Son of God that will enable him also to judge all that the Father puts under his feet in that judgment day yet to come. He will judge in the same way, in the same manner, in the same wine press, if you will. He will judge those that are side of Christ and there will be none that can escape the wrath and the judgment that come at that time. There will be no one to survive that treading. He will crush all and put all under. That is the promise of the Father. And then I want you to see this in the last place. His was a singular salvation. His was a singular salvation. If you read verse 5 again. And I looked and there was none to help. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Now here. Therefore mine own arm. 
brought salvation unto me. Mine own arm brought salvation unto me. The Lord simply states that in this small phrase, that he alone brings about salvation. And a salvation that is in all ways and to the fullest extent true salvation. It's not partial salvation. It's not something that is just salvation. He, by the strength of his own arm, accomplishes the salvation of those that he came to save. In fact, I think in some ways that's the same thing as Paul is saying in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, by the power of his own arm, by the strength of his own redeeming work, by the absolute success of that which he has done before the throne of God. He has accomplished utter salvation. How do you think about it? Just, just let your mind think for a little while. What does it mean to be utterly saved? Completely, perfectly saved. There there can't be anything added to this salvation. There can't be anything. If you are saved, you are utterly saved. And whose arm is it that keeps you? Whose arm is it that brought you there? Whose arm you're going to rest on? Whose arm is it that's underneath you as the everlasting arms? Whose? I'm trying to get you to say, the Lord Jesus. Yes, I'm also trying to get you to understand it doesn't have anything to do with you. You know, the question that we might ask at this time is this. If any man, if any man, what kind of salvation does he come up with in his mind? Well, the answer is simple. It's a salvation, but not of God, but of works of self. Well, I ask you, consider most man-oriented religions in this world. It's not all of God, is it? It all has to do with extra things that man does. That's not the salvation of God. The salvation of the Lord Jesus is a salvation that is all of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or, we might even say, have confidence in something that he has done. The salvation of Jesus Christ is a sure salvation. All that ever incorporates the doings of man will lead to doubt and to insecurity. Let me put it to you this way. You ever wonder, you ever have doubts about your salvation? Why? Why would you ever have a doubt? Well, the answer comes to this. Because you can't quite get yourself out of the picture. You're always looking about something. If I, if I were saved, I'd be this or that or the other thing. I'd be less that. You're not considering Christ. You're not considering this, this success, the perfect work of the one with his own arm brought about the salvation of his people. I am saved because 
Jesus saves me. That's it. None was with him. Why? Because none could be with him. And when you and I say hallelujah, because we are out of the picture, because if we had been with him, we'd have messed the whole thing up. None was with him. You're here today to remember that Christ alone is your hope. You're here today to remember that by the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, he perfectly tread the winepress of God and with his own arms secured your salvation perfectly, everlastingly, and to the point where now you're not only saved, but you're seated with him in heavenly places, enjoying the unending and the unalterable and the undilutable love of God. How blessed are you this morning? How safe are you this morning? The answer is just as much as Jesus. Well, may the Lord bless his word to our hearts and prepare us now to come to Blessed be his name. Amen.